I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open again to the Gospel of John. You see it on the screen before you, John chapter 8. I want to continue this examination of what it looks like to walk as Jesus walked. And sometimes, if we're going to learn how it was that Jesus walked, we have to listen to the things that he said. And I don't mean that like, he said, do this, so do this. That's clear, that's obvious, right? But sometimes, in the midst of a larger conversation, Jesus says things that can be, I don't want to say profound as though they're more significant or less significant than other things maybe that Jesus has said, but sometimes we can see demonstrations of his life in areas where he's teaching, but the demonstration of his life might actually pertain to something different. And that's actually what we encounter this morning as we begin uh, our time. I want to talk a little bit about the reality of obedience. And uh, you see the question on the screen before us this morning is, what prompts obedience? And if we're talking about the reality of walking like Jesus walked, then if we're going to walk as Jesus walked and consider this reality of obedience, then part of our conversation obviously is examining the obedience of Jesus or examining some of the ways Jesus was obedient or examining the why was Jesus obedient. Um, I, I don't know uh, if you've raised kids. Maybe you still have kids that you're raising. Um, my, my oldest is at the age now where if I ask her to do something, I probably have to tell her why I'm asking her to do that before she's just going to go ahead and do that. Um, and it's not, I don't mean that in like a, a, a disrespectful, condescending way that she's not going to do the things that I ask her unless I give her a six-bullet-point explanation of why. Uh, but sometimes if I, if I, because this is how our kids' minds work, okay? I don't know if you realize this, but my daughter's almost 10, and so if I say to her, Joy, could you go do this for me? There's a good chance that while she's going to do it, in her mind she's thinking, well, why don't you do that, Dad? And that's not a wrong question for her to pose. Like, why are you asking me to do that instead of you, Dad? So if, let's say... This is, a, this is a real life example, and Joy is such a trooper, so commend her when you see her. Um, we have a dog, and uh, when you have a fenced-in yard and you have a dog and you need to mow, uh, there's some things that need to be disposed of before you can mow, right? And, and so sometimes I say to Joy, hey, honey, while dad's mowing the front yard in preparation for me being able to mow the backyard, would, would you pick up the dog poop? And she does. She's good about it. If I ask her to do it, she does, but... If I'm sitting on the couch and I say, hey, Joy, go clean up the dog poop, she's in her mind, she's thinking, okay, it's not abnormal for me to clean up the dog poop, but dad, why can't you or why aren't you or what are you doing that prohibits you from being able to clean the dog poop, okay? And I'm only saying that not because she has articulated those things, but as she gets older, you can see, literally see her mind working, okay, and you navigate some of these things. And so I say all of that to say this, oftentimes I would submit to you that it is more important to know why you do something than what it is you're supposed to be doing. If you know why you do something, you probably don't have to be told to do it because you know this needs to be done and you know the motivation for why you're the one who can do it and so you do it. Everybody who has been in church for any length of time at all with, you can have very little understanding of the Word of God, and oftentimes it's, a, it's an improper understanding of this particular idea, but you have some form of an understanding of the reality that God expects obedience. Yeah, we know that, right? Now, again, a lot of ideas exist about obedience that are wrong. 
Well, God just tells us to do this and not do this because he's a fun sucker. Because he doesn't want us to enjoy life. He doesn't want us to have fun. Okay, that's a, that's a, hey, we know what God says and this is why we think that. Well, it's a bad motivation. That's a bad understanding. But nonetheless, what is it? It's an, under, it's an expressed understanding that God has expectations. Listen, God expects obedience. And you probably all knew that even before I told you. God expects obedience. And so if we try to foster obedience without developing the motivation for why we ought to be obedient to God, obedience really won't be obedience at all. At all. You'll resent the things that you do. You won't find joy or pleasure in serving the Lord or in pleasing the Lord. You, you find that you do it because I have to. So this morning, I want to talk about not the reality that we have to be obedient. I don't want to tell you that God expects you to be obedient because I trust that you know that. But as we look at this reality this morning and we examine this conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders and the Jewish people as a whole, I want us to understand why Jesus was obedient. Okay? And this whole conversation that we've been having, you've got to remember, it sits in the context of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, in his humanity, did not live faithfully following the will of the Father in any way that we cannot. He did it as a human. He was in, though he was in the form of God, he took on flesh. He became a human, okay? And so I want to talk this morning about the reality of obedience. And for Jesus, listen, I trust you know this. If you don't, I'll tell you, his entire life was a life of obedience, Jesus' entire life was about obedience, primarily to the will of the Father. The things that he did, the things that he did not do, his entire purpose was to fulfill the plan or the will of his Father, and this absolutely could not be done apart from obedience. You cannot fulfill the will of his, He could not fulfill the will of his Father without obedience. And according to the definition provided by Oxford Dictionaries, the world's most, this is funny, I have to share this because this was the descriptor as I just went to Google and I typed in the word obedience, and then it gives you a definition. And of course, if you scroll, you know, there's different dictionaries that you can get the, the definition from, but I'm going to share the first one with you because it, it's the, the right definition, but I loved how the, if you just go to Google and type in a word, uh, the 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 automated response that you get is from the Oxford Dictionary of the English Language. All right? And here's how um, I wrote this in my notes is, is found on Google. According to the definition provided by Oxford Dictionaries, the world's most authoritative source on the current English, I found that very interesting. I don't know who declared them the world's most authoritative source, but somebody did. They said, obedience is compliance with an order, request, or law, or a submission to another's authority. Now we saw last week, John 17, as we examine the high priestly prayer of Jesus, that he recognized the authority that his father had over all things. He was the authority, he is the authority, and nothing is outside of his authority. And we know, as again we saw last week, Christ has no issues submitting to the authority of the will of his father. Again, over and over in the life of Christ, he models obedience to the Father. And I believe, or I would submit to you this morning, that that time and time again modeling is noteworthy. 
Because as I've alluded to this morning in our passage, we don't directly see Jesus teaching about obedience. We don't hear Jesus calling people to obedience and then explaining for them what that obedience would look like in their lives. Rather, what we see is Jesus just living his life in human form in obedience. Now think about that for just a second. It's not grand. It's not extravagant. It's not supernatural. It's just Jesus living his life to the glory of his Father, and in order for that to happen, he lives it in obedience. I believe this is noteworthy, right? Because I think the church today, we, we, we compartmentalize God. We compartmentalize the Christian life. We compartmentalize our walk with Christ. And there's certain times when we do certain things, and there's certain times when we do other things. And, and the reality that we see from Jesus is that no parts of Jesus' life were compartmentalized to sometimes be about the will of the Father. The entirety of the life of Jesus Christ was about the will of his Father. And so we learn a lot as we see him just living his life to the glory of the Father, living his life in obedience to the will of his Father. Obedience ought to be a regular part of our lives, just like it was a regular part of the human life of Christ. Now, John chapter 8 is a pretty well-known passage of Scripture, okay? Um, In this chapter, we find a number of things. Uh, In the ESV, it does record for us in the first 11 verses the interaction of Jesus and the Pharisees with um, the woman who's caught in adultery. Uh, There's a lot of conversation that exists about this being in some texts and not other texts. So maybe your Bible has it, maybe your Bible doesn't. Um, My English translation does. So the the John chapter 8 opens with that. Uh, We also see one of Jesus' I am statements right there in verse 12 where he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus goes on to say beyond our text this morning in verse 30 down through about 35, he speaks to the reality of of, that he's come to so that people might know the truth and that in knowing the truth that they might be free Right? And so these are things that, we, man, we've heard these. We recognize some of these things. Also in John chapter 8, we see Jesus very sharply rebuking the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And this is actually a continuation of the conversation recorded for us in John chapter 7. And Jesus, as John chapter 8 comes to a close, we see some of these realities where he's equating himself with God or with the Father is he draws on the relationship between the Jews he's interacting with and their father Abraham and who he is. And so he's equating himself with God. And in and, and beginning here in verse 12, and we won't take the time to read our, this whole context this morning. I'll just kind of summarize it for the, the sake of time. But in, in verse 12, again, we see this is where Jesus utilizes one of his I am statements, right? We just reference this where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if we're following Jesus, we cannot walk in darkness. To have Jesus is to have the light, and that is to walk in the light, not in the darkness. Right? And so there's a contrast by Jesus between those who follow him and those who do not follow him. And the difference between walking in darkness and walking in light is obedience. And Jesus... He's creating this contrast. 
And he'll say in our text, we'll look at in just a moment, that the Pharisees will know, they will know that he was from the Father when? After he's lifted up. After they crucify him, because that is the beginning of the proving out of Jesus. He makes all these claims about being equal with God. He makes all of these claims, claims about being the Messiah and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And they don't believe him, and they doubt him, and they're skeptical, and they, ultimately they crucify him. But it was then, at the crucifixion and the events that would subsequently follow, that the onlooking world would say, as the centurion said, surely this man was the Son of God. And so Jesus, again, we see this, he's, he's interacting, he's rebuking these Pharisees. Not only this, but the larger context is from chapter 6 to chapter 8. This, those who are listening, those who are looking on, those who are participating in the conversation, right in the middle of this is this contrast, light and darkness of the rejection of Jesus. They're going to believe, are they, are they going to believe what he says about who he is or are they not? And some will walk in light and some will walk in darkness. And at the end of chapter 8, Jesus questions the faith of these Pharisees who would challenge them or who would challenge him. And they would appeal to their father Abraham as the basis or the foundation for their faith. And if you go on into chapter 9, Jesus tells them that their father is not Abraham, that their father is the devil. So Jesus is teaching in a very sharp way. He's calling to task the Pharisees in their misappropriation and misuse of the law to advance their purposes and to advance their narratives. The greatest difference as we navigate these few chapters between Jesus and the Pharisees is that Jesus' obedience is obedient to the word of God and the will of God, and the Pharisees are not. The Pharisees are are more steeped in their ways and in their values and in their traditions. And Jesus flat out tells them that their refusal to believe in the one whom the Father has sent, that is him, has left them condemned. That's what Jesus tells these Pharisees. And so what we see from this is that Christ in his obedience to the Father is demonstrating for them and by way of demonstrating for them for us that he actually is from the Father. That he's, as, he, as he makes these claims and then he lives out this obedience, that he is from the Father, he has been sent, and he is working according to his Father's will. And this all serves to support what it is that he's telling the Pharisees as well as the Jewish people that he's speaking to about how his testimony is true because the Father bears witness. And that's part of what happens leading up to our text. They say, your testimony can't be true, Jesus, because you, by, by law on Jewish... Jewish um, the Jewish legal system, you had to have the testimony of two witnesses or it wasn't considered truthful. And so when Jesus makes these claims, the Pharisees, again, clinging to the, the, their misinterpretation of the law and clinging to their traditions, they say, Jesus, that can't be true. You can't be the son of God because you're the only one that attests to this. And Jesus says to them in so many words, after you crucify me and I rise from the dead, you will see that my father too attests to this. In the testimony of myself and my father, two witnesses, you are now left condemned, unbelieving Pharisees. And so in just a few verses I want to examine this morning, Jesus calls out the unbelief of the Pharisees. And he does so in a way that's just simply contrasted by Jesus living his life to the will of his father. So let's read verses 28 through 30 together. You follow along with me. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, 
then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So here we see this conversation, right? This is where this, this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders, it's, it, it's not, it doesn't end here, but this is where he kind of puts a stop to their accusation. You will see. It'll all make sense very soon. You see, it would be the unbelief of the religious leaders and the nation as a whole that would be responsible for the lifting up of the Son of Man. And that's what Jesus says. This is when you're going to begin to know. When the Son of Man, verse 28, is lifted up. Their unbelief demonstrates for us the obedience of the Son to the will of His Father. You recognize that? Their unbelief prompts them to carry out the crucifixion of the Messiah, which for us demonstrates the obedience of the Son. Okay? As he talked about this reality, and we looked at, we've talked about the Garden of Gethsemane recently, we've talked about this interaction with Jesus last week in the, the high priestly prayer. He knew what was at stake. He knew what was awaiting him, and it was the will of the Father for the Son to be punished, for them to be crushed under the weight of our iniquities. But it was their unbelief they carried it out. So what can we learn from Christ as he prepares to carry out the will of the Father in obedience? The first thing to learn about Christ in obedience is that Christ was obedient because he knew the Father intimately. Aaron, can you click on proclaim for me? I think it got clicked off. There we go. Thank you. Jesus, whoop, Jesus was obedient because he knew the Father intimately. So again, remember, we're looking at this from the perspective of why be obedient? What prompts obedience? Jesus was obedient because he knew the Father intimately. Again, look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. In his rebuke of the Jews' unbelief, Jesus exclaims, they will know that he is who he says he is because he has done as the Father has taught him. He's done all the things that the Father has taught him. You see, the teacher-pupil relationship, it's a very close-knit. It's a very connected position, especially in the first century. The teacher was not someone who merely conveyed information that maybe was to be simply memorized and then uh, repeated or regurgitated on a test. Oftentimes in this first century context, as it pertained to Judaism, the teacher was referred to as the rabbi. And the word rabbi actually means my master. And so it carried with it the connotation of the one who was learned in the law of Moses. And the rabbi or the master would have pupils and we'd have understudies who would learn from him. Now, what's interesting about the term rabbi is that oftentimes the rabbi, just note this, I did not know this until this week. The word rabbi would often, or those who would, would refer to a rabbi, would often refer to their rabbi as Abba or Papa. That word means father. These understudies, these students, would refer to their teacher as Papa. Or Abba, Father. 
This, this teacher-student relationship was not just some whimsical, uh, you know, fly-by-night, if we cross paths, I might learn something from you relationship. It was a very specific and intentional and purposeful relationship. It was commonly understood, although Jesus did push back against this, that the rabbi was on a higher level than his children, or his, we use the word children, right? Abba, Papa, children, or his disciples. The common, the common Jewish tradition was that these rabbis had an elevated position, and Jesus pushed back against this, right? So as it pertains to Christ, it is not that Jesus was on a lower or a lesser level than the Father. What we see here is the reality that Jesus had an intimate relationship with his father that would have been very similar or common to that of a a pupil and his student, a rabbi and his understudy or his disciple. And notice when Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, again, we've seen this, implying their unbelief and disobedience, that it is then that they will know who he is. Why will they know then? Because they're operating out of their own authority. But Jesus is under the operation of the authority of his Father according to all that his Father has taught him. The relationship that existed between Jesus and his Father was one of an intimate sense. It was an intimate relationship where Jesus came to fully know all that the Father had for him. That is not to say that he did not know about the plan before the foundations of the world, but in his humanity... Because of his intimate relationship with the Father, he was able to be obedient. He was able to march on. He was able to trust and to follow all that had been taught him by his Father, his Abba or his Papa. And honestly, I don't know of a better relationship to demonstrate the relationship between Jesus and the Father than that of a child and their earthly father. You see, God's design is that men would love and lead their children, that they would be raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord to the glory of God. Too many fathers spend more time barking at their kids than cultivating an intimate relationship with them. Men and women, because moms were not excluded from this, men and women need to be teaching and imparting truths to their children. There is no one better equipped to teach your children the, tu- the truths of Scripture than you. It is not my job to teach your children the truths of Scripture. It is not our youth leader's job to teach your children the truths of Scripture. It's yours. And this is how God designed it. And Jesus, having this intimate relationship with his Father, he absorbed what the Father taught him. Sometimes we think about, and, I, and, and, and you know, when we think about this interaction that maybe we have or don't have lots of times with our kids, maybe sometimes our kids don't do the things we want them to do or we ask them to do because we don't have the relationship with them that we ought to have. Maybe we think, our kids, they should be obedient because I'm the dad. Well, you can beat your kids into submission. When they're about 20, let me know how that went. Obedience comes out of an intimate relationship. 
And this is how God designed it. And this is how God manifested it. Like we, we see it demonstrated for us in Scripture, right? And we, we have to be teaching our truths, not only be, or not the truths of Scripture to our kids, not only because we're the ones that are best equipped to do it, but because here's the other thing. As it pertains to Scripture, our children cannot obey what they do not know. Brothers and sisters, you cannot obey what you do not know. The, the impartation of the Word of God is vital. We have, we have expectations as parents. They need to be communicated. God has expectations of his children. They have been communicated. And they are communicated where? Obviously in the Word of God. It's God's word where an intimate relationship is cultivated that prompts obedience. If God is nothing more than some far off, distant, whatever you claim him to be, you will find no joy in him and you will have no desire to be obedient to him. But when you have a growing, thriving, living, loving, intimate relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, your greatest desire is simply to please him. You cannot have that relationship without the word of God. This really is simple to understand, right? And so as it pertains to us and obedience, I want you to understand something. You cannot obey that which you do not know. You can't obey the word of God if you don't know it. And if you don't know God or his word, then you cannot obey him or his word. If believers are to be obedient, then an intimate relationship must be being cultivated from God's word. Because again, if you're not being obedient out of love and adoration, when we submit to God and his will out of love and adoration for him, that's obedience. When you do things because, oh, I have to do this, that's not obedience. Because obedience only comes out of a, of a response of love and adoration for a God who has given everything to redeem you. And so we have to foster this relationship, and as the relationship is fostered, so is obedience. Just as we know our earthly father more, we can know what he expects, and we can be obedient to out of love and adoration for him, so it is with our heavenly father. You see, Jesus was obedient, right? Not just because of his intimate relationship with the father, but because of the relationship that Jesus had with his father, it prompted Again, something that I believe is vital in this conversation of obedience. He was obedient because he trusted the Father. He knew all the things that the Father had taught him, and he lived in obedience to them on the basis of their close, intimate relationship. But in verse 29, he says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 29, He has not left me alone. Jesus lives out obedience because he knows and understands that through all of it, the presence of the Father is with him. And we know that this is not talking about a, a physical presence. All throughout the Word of God, we're reminded of the promised presence of God. Jesus knew this, and because we have the Word of God, if we have a growing knowledge of the Word of God, we too can know this. Consider the words of the psalmist in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. 
Consider the words that we've seen very much recently. Matthew 28, verse 20, the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For as he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I know we're looking at those and we're not giving all the context of all of those. We could if we had more time. But the point is very simple. God has promised his presence to his children. God has promised his presence. And Jesus understood and knew very well that the Father had not left him alone. You see, the presence of God, knowing that the Father had not left Christ abandoned to face the crowds and the cross, fueled his obedience. He says there, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. That's a statement, right? I just think about that for a second. What if, not in a self-righteous, pious way, but what if we could say that our life was more defined by doing the things that are pleasing to the Father than the things that are unpleasing? Man, that would be a heck of a testimony to the commitment and the faithfulness of God. Knowing that you are not alone compels or motivates you to continue on. If, you're, if you have a relationship with Christ and you seek to live your life to the glory of the Father in accordance with His will, His promised presence will compel you to keep going. Because again, we, we know what happened with Christ. We know how things turned out, earthly speaking, for Him. You think the presence of the Father as He walked towards Gethsemane, the presence of the Father when he prayed in Gethsemane, when he was betrayed by Jesus, when he was being beaten, ultimately when he was crucified. You think the presence of the Father didn't make a difference in the earthly life of Jesus? We see this carrying on isn't just about knowing that God has promised his presence. God can promise whatever he wants, but if we don't trust what he promises, we'll never be obedient. That's why Jesus was obedient to the Father, because he trusted him. Jesus didn't just have head knowledge about the Father's presence with him. He trusted that the Father would be with him. And this is part of the reason, there's many, but this is one of the reasons why Jesus bearing the wrath of God at Calvary was so devastating. For the first and only time in the scope of human history, Jesus was separated from his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the wrath of the Father was poured out on Jesus. In that moment, and only for that period of time, was Jesus separated from the presence of his Father. But until that time, Jesus marched in obedience according to the will of the Father because he trusted what the Father had made known to him and he had promised to be with him. The Father was faithful to his word and Jesus believed it. You know how we know Jesus believed it? Because he was obedient. That's how you know Jesus trusted the Father because he was obedient. And when I think about Trusting the Father, once again, I think of the child 
or the father-child relationship. Some of you might recall, three years ago, we went to Florida. Three years ago, JoJo would have been two and a half. And I told this story about how we were at the condo in Florida for spring break, and JoJo, of course, at this point, can't swim a lick. She's got her little, her little floaty thing on, and she's standing on the side of the pool, and I'm j- jump, 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 jump. Dad's not going to let you drown. Jump, jump in the pool. Some of you might remember that. Ultimately, she jumped in learning that her flotation device would not allow her to sink. Okay? So we've, we've been down this, right? But what's interesting is the level of trust that we call our kids to grows over time. And two weeks ago, we were at church camp, right? And, and there was a, about a 30-minute window between when something had ended and lunch was going to be served. And Jillian and Jojo wanted to go swimming, and Jenna couldn't take them. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take you swimming. We got just a few minutes. Let's go. So we go, and we get in the pool. And in the, in the pool where we're at, the deep end's nine feet. So it's over my head, right? It's over her head. It's over my head. And, and they were jumping and doing some different things. And I said to Jojo, I swam down to the deep end, and I said, jump in. You can swim now, Jojo. Like, just jump in, and when you hit the water, start swimming. Swim back to the side and get out. And so we had this same interaction, right? So this time she wasn't wearing a floaty because she can swim a little bit now. And her greatest fear was that when she jumped off the edge of the pool and hit the water, she was going to sink. But there was something there that was promising to keep her from sinking. Me. And the fact also that she can swim. Nonetheless, here's Jojo on the edge of the pool being prompted to jump. Literally, she's afraid for her life. But with a little bit of coaxing... And a little bit of reminding that I would not let her drown, she jumped. And I didn't let her drown. I actually didn't have to do anything. She jumped in and she swam back. The point remains that she was prompted to obedience when I told her to jump. Why? Because she trusted me. Because she said, that water is over my head, and I'm afraid that if I jump in there, I'm going to sink. And ultimately, she's old enough to understand what happens when you sink in water. You can't swim, you drown, you die. But nonetheless, she stood on the side of the pool, and because she trusted me to not let her drown, she jumped. And this leads us to our point. You will only obey those whom you trust. Maybe you're not obedient to God because you don't trust him. Maybe you don't trust him because you don't have a growing relationship whereby he's revealing his faithfulness to you, right? Someone who is not credible or trustworthy, we most likely won't obey. This is why relationship is so vital. Why did Jesus know that the father was trustworthy? Because they had an intimate relationship. Because he knew his father. And honestly, for us today, it's the same way, right? Like, we don't just naturally, inherently trust people. Time, right? Time and communication, they predicate trust. You get to know people, you can trust people. But once trust is established, then obedience can follow. This is true in our personal relationships, this is true in our families, and this is true in our relationship to Christ. And lastly, I want you to see this morning, Jesus was obedient because his life was all about the will of the Father. All about the will of the Father. Verse 30 is a summary statement for this passage. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. 
See, many believed in Jesus as he spoke. And this is the crux of the whole situation. Jesus was simply living his life at this point. He wasn't performing miracles. He wasn't being beaten, crucified. He hadn't risen from the dead. He wasn't meeting with people in his resurrected body prior to his ascension. He was just living life teaching about eternal life and teaching about unbelief and how it is that belief, and particularly in him, was the key to having life. But as he simply lived out his life in obedience to the will of the Father, people believed. People noticed. When he lived to the will of the Father, it was obvious. And there's more to say on this matter in John 8 as it would pertain to true belief and eternal life. But this morning, for this morning, we see that when we will be obedient to those whom we love and trust, we will be obedient. Why? Because we understand, like, as a father, it's my responsibility to guide my child into making the decisions that are best for them. I don't know what God's will for my kid's life is, but I do know that God's will for my life is that I would care and shepherd those girls while they're in my care. And part of that means... Having an intimate, growing relationship with them where they can trust me and helping to cultivate an intimate, growing relationship with God so that they could trust Him. So again, I want to illustrate this with Jojo and the pool. Jojo knows that Dad will do everything possible in his power to ensure her safety. There is a reality that there are things that are outside of my control. There are things that I can do nothing about. There are things that I cannot prevent. There are things that I cannot steer my kids clear of. But Jojo knows, as much as it pertains to dad, dad will do everything that he can do to keep her safe. And because she knows this, her love for me and her trust of me will prompt her to do hard things. Okay? In fact, when she went to jump in the pool, she's on the edge like this. She's been here for not too long. What's as long as before? She's right here on the edge of the pool like this. And I'm, I'm like treading water because it's over my head. And I'm like, kid, you got to jump or I'm going to have to get out because I'm about to drown. But you got to jump, Jojo. And she's on the side of the water. I'm like, baby, go. Just jump and swim. I'll catch you or you'll swim. And so finally when she gets ready to go, she says, okay, on the count of three, one, two, three, I can do hard things and jumps in the pool. Now, that's from her mom. I can do hard things. She tells the girls all the time, you can do hard things. You can do hard things. It's small in the grand scheme of things that JoJo jumped in the pool. In her five-year-old, almost six-year-old mind, that was a hard thing, okay? But in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't hard. I wish I could say it wasn't true, but in her life, she will endure and be part of things that are much more difficult than jumping into a pool that's over her head at five years old. Jesus living his life just in obedience to the Father in teaching, rebuking the Pharisees, speaking to who he is and about eternal life and calling people to faith wasn't the hard part of the will of the Father for Jesus. But if you think it was easy to march to his death at the hands of Roman soldiers to be beaten, ultimately crucified, whereby he absorbed the wrath of God, if you think that was easy, you do not understand God or his word. 
And the whole reality of obedience is, as we live this life in obedience, obedience becomes more natural, and as more difficult things enter into our lives, we will be obedient in those things as well because we've learned obedience in the smaller things. When we struggle with obedience day to day, we are not going to be obedient in the big things. But Jesus was obedient. Why? Because his entire life was about carrying out the will of the Father. And that included doing hard things. Here's the point. You will live in obedience when you know that no matter what that obedience is calling you to, it's according to the will of the Father and that he will use it for your good and for his glory. When you know that and you believe that, and what, what predicates knowing and believing that? Trusting him based upon a relationship that you have with him. And when you have those things, you will live in obedience. And when you live in obedience to the glory of the Father, people will notice, just as they did with Jesus. He lived his life for the will of his Father, that, that sinful man might be redeemed. See, our obedience to the Father out of love and trust for him, I cannot overstate for you how important it is for us to recognize the testimony that our lives bear to what we believe about Christ. When you live your life for the glory of God, it's not easy. I think about the last couple years and some of the things that God has called people to this body alone to navigate. And I have seen people navigate things in ways that I think I, that is, they are in tune with God. And man, he is near to their heart. And he has promised his presence and they recognize it's real and they are walking in faith with him. And I pray that if someday God calls me to a situation as difficult as that, that my testimony, that my faith would be as strong as theirs is. But you know what? I've also seen God call people to hard things and watch them walk away and throw in the towel. And I don't mean physically. I mean abandon Jesus I mean, turn away and just say, this isn't for me. I'm not doing this. I don't, Jesus calling me to hard things. I'm not interested in that. I'm not willing to be a part of that. I'm telling you right now, the person who perseveres in the tough things Christ calls them to that are outside of those, their control are those who are in step with Jesus. And those when Jesus calls them to hard things who throw in the towel are those who are far from him. And we all know people. We all know people who rather than honoring God and doing what his word clearly teaches, I don't say, no. It's easier to just not do Jesus, to walk away and abandon. I'm done with it. And that's not the fruit of a trusting, intimate, vibrant relationship. Obedience is vital to the life of the professing believer. When you consider what you know about God's word, are you obedient to it? You can only be obedient to what you know. So the things that you do know, are you obedient to them? And if in your mind, in your heart, you would say, well, no, not really. Again, we're not, nobody's being asked to be obedient to that which they don't know yet. Okay, we talk a lot about having a growing relationship 
We're called to obedience to that which we do know. But if you struggle to be obedient to the things that you do know, I would just simply ask you, do you have a close, intimate relationship with the Father? Do you trust him? Maybe something's transpired in your life, maybe in your past, maybe a season or a situation that you're going through right now. You say, I'm having a hard time trusting God. That's going to produce a hard time being obedient to God. But in both of these situations, whether it's we're not close with him or we don't trust him, God's word is what will help us. God's word is what invokes and cultivates that relationship that produces the trust. It establishes first and then fosters that relationship that will compel us to live in obedience to the glory of God according to his will that he might use it in the world around us. So I would ask you, do you, re- do you love God? Maybe that sounds cheesy. Maybe it's corny. I don't care. Because that's the essence of God's word. We love Because he first loved us. Do you love God? And if you say yes, you love God, do you trust him? Do you love him when it's easy? But when it's not so smooth, maybe not so much? When the evidence of my love for him is trusting him in the midst of difficulty, do you still love him? Do you still trust him? If you cannot answer yes, To both of these questions, I would submit to you this morning that obedience will be difficult in your life. Because both of these things prompt obedience to the Father. Do you know Him? Do you love Him? Do you trust Him? And do you understand that the call of the Father whom you say you love and trust is that your life would be about His glory? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the example of Jesus. I thank you, God, that we can look at Jesus' everyday life, where he's interacting with people, and we can see demonstrations, God, and manifestations of just his obedience to you, God, his love and trust for you. Father, we just pray that you would challenge our hearts today. I pray, God, that you would help us to see that the reality of the Christian life it's, it's, it's all about, it's all about loving you and trusting you. Everything else is just some of the things that we try to do and carry on to manifest that love. But at the foundation, God, the, the life of a follower of Jesus is all about loving you and trusting you. Father, help us to see and to know this morning that God, apart from faith in Christ and the the forgiveness of sins through that faith, God, we truly can't love you. We truly can't be obedient to you. And we certainly don't trust you. So, Father, we pray this morning that maybe hearts are being stirred to the reality of that they don't love you and that they don't trust you. And maybe they don't want anything to do with you. But, God, I would pray for that heart as well. I I would just pray, God, that you would challenge that heart to look to the truths of your word that they might have a right understanding of you and how you function and, God, what you've done for us, that we could have that growing relationship that is built upon love and trust. Father, you are good and you are faithful. And, Father, sometimes we need you to help us see that. 
Because the world that we live in and the circumstances that sometimes come into our lives can cloud out the reality that you're good and you're faithful. And we can begin to believe the lies and we can get sucked into the deception that says, maybe you're not good and faithful. Father, help us to see the truth today and help us to be reminded and to know, God, that truth is only found in your word. Work in us and through us, God, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.